0: Father, we know that you are a loving and gracious God. But, Father, I pray that through the illumination of your word by your Holy Spirit, that we would come to understand that love to a greater degree today. Father, teach us through your word. Teach us by your Spirit. that you would be glorified in our life, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our texts today are driven by conversations. And within these conversations, we are giving glimpses into the theology and the lives of the people that are communicating with Jesus. The the first person that we hear from is Thomas who's famous, not for faith, but for doubt. And even here, the statement that he makes shows how off base he was concerning life with Jesus and the reality of who he is. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, we're never told who he's thinking about when he says to the rest of the disciples, let us go that that we may die with him. Was it Lazarus, who Jesus just told these men was dead? Or was it Jesus, who the Pharisees were looking to bury under a mountain of boulders? More than likely, he was speaking about the real danger that these men knew was waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. But there's irony at play here. Because the disciples had been with Jesus when he had made that statement that he was God. And they had heard all of those I am statements. They had also seen Jesus perform many signs and wonders and heard him tell others that in him was eternal life, something that they believed. But having said that, they, or at least Thomas, had a bad understanding of the Christ that was in their midst. Thomas thought that Christ would be a victim a victim of the evil intentions of these religious leaders. Even though he had heard Jesus, after claiming to be the good shepherd back in chapter 10, tell those men that wanted to kill Jesus that he lays his life down and that none can take it from him, that he had that authority and that charge from his father. Verses 14 through 18. Thomas still thought, that those men had power over Jesus, that they could take his life along with the lives of those that were with him. This is a clear demonstration of bad theology on the part of a believer, one that most of us would think that Jesus would have corrected at that moment. But he, Jesus, knew that the best correction of that bad theology would come Not in the form of a verbal rebuke from him, but in the clear demonstration of his deity when he exerted his authority over all life and death, which would happen very soon. This brings us to verses 17 and 18. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. Verses 17 and 18 are that common commentary by John, which is the hallmark of this gospel. Bethany was a small town that was close enough to this large city that many people traveled back and forth between them on a consistent basis, which would give credence to why there were so many mourners over this man who lived in this small, obscure town. And the second thing that we're to take away from this commentary is exactly when Lazarus had died. We are told that after Jesus received word that Lazarus was was ill, he stayed for two days. This is verses 5 through 7 of this chapter. We are also told at the end of the last chapter, that after the confrontation of the Pharisees in the temple, that Jesus had gone across the Jordan to where John had been baptizing. John chapter 10, verse 40. That would have placed Jesus around Jericho, which is about 18 to 20 miles from Bethany. Now, 18 to 20 miles is not a huge distance for us. But in that day and age, that distance would have taken between 8 to 10 hours to walk. And that was their choice. Walk. Along with that, it was customary to bury the dead on the day that they died, since very few people were ever embalmed. Along with that, though, at the same time, the Jews in that time period held that the spirit of a person remained in the proximity of a body for three days, just in case they were just mostly dead and not dead dead. But after three days, The decomposition had begun to such a degree that even the spirit couldn't stand the stink, and so it left as well. That Lazarus had been dead for four days before Jesus arrived spoke to the fact that there was no way that he had just fainted or passed out and had been startled back into consciousness by the command of Jesus to come out. This also tells us that Lazarus died the day that the message was delivered to Jesus. In fact, he could have already been dead when the message reached Jesus, which is pretty poignant since the response to receiving this message that Lazarus was ill was for Jesus to tell those around him that this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This leads us to the first interaction within our section of Scripture today. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. In verse 4, Jesus said that the illness of Lazarus would not lead to death. It was for the glory of God, that the Son of God would be glorified through it. The original Greek is actually different than what the translation I just read says. The difference is that in the original language, what Jesus said is that this illness will not end in death. It will lead to death, but it will not end in death. Death would be involved in this illness. It would be used to bring glory to God in order that the Son of God would be glorified. And it would be used by God for the good of Martha and Mary and even Lazarus. What Jesus meant by this was that because Lazarus was his, because Martha and Mary were the elect of God, because he was the light of the world that was illuminating their path. He would use the pain of death, the suffering of this illness, and the loss of life for a twofold reason. The first would be to reveal to them their incorrect understanding of him. And the second was to bring about the circumstances that would reveal his true nature and mission here on earth. What Martha said to Jesus reveals not only the hurt and pain that she's feeling, but also her preconceived ideas concerning the mission of Jesus and how he should have acted because of the love that he had for these people. In saying that if he had been there, her brother would not have died is merely presupposition on her part. She is presuming how Jesus would have acted, in fact, what she's actually saying, she's accusing Jesus of not acting by not being there. And then she follows up that her personal presupposition concerning the actions of Christ with partial truth, that whatever he asks from God, he will be granted. But once again, there's a presupposition on the part of Martha concerning what Jesus should do. He should ask his father to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And her statement to him proves that while she may have believed that, that Jesus was God, her belief was incomplete, was off base. She either didn't know, didn't understand, or didn't believe that all authority had been given to Jesus by the Father, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. He didn't need to ask his father. But her selfish, bad theology has been revealed now. The squeezing of the Lord had brought out the reality of her faith in Jesus. And at the same time, had brought out that sin that tainted that faith. That came out as well. And before we get all judgy on her, Know that none of us have perfect theology. None of us have perfect understanding of the nature of Christ. And none of us have faith that is not tainted by sin. And while this truth may sting, we should also take hope in the manner in which Jesus deals with this dear, hurting saint. Take hope? How much hope can we have if this is how Jesus treats those that he loves? How are we to have hope when we know that because Jesus loved these people, he stayed for two days? He allowed or even ordained that illness in the life of Lazarus. He let that guy suffer in that illness and even die. He didn't answer the prayers of that man or these sisters who probably relied on Lazarus as their sole source of covering and protection. And then he let these sisters mourn for four days before he even showed up on the scene. How are we supposed to take hope knowing this? Well, let me remind you of a couple of key texts concerning the manner in which the Lord deals with those whom he loves and has poured his spirit into. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all Things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And hear what Paul had to say just prior to telling us that we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God, that are called according to His purpose. Verses 18 through 25. He said, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time." are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from his bondage to corruption, and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Can you now see how important understanding the life that Christ gives us is? How important it is to live in the eager longing for the real life that Christ has given us in himself? The life that is not this life? The life that this life is preparing us for, training us for, conforming us into the image of the Son that purchased us, who gave us this life, and more importantly, the one to come. That man tells Martha truth. Your brother will rise. In the ESV, the addition of that word again is just that it's just an addition. It's not in the original Greek, and has been added by many translations to try to help us, the readers, understand what Jesus was saying. But just like most helps that have been added to the Bible, this one really doesn't. But in that day and age, there were two camps within Judaism, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees held that there was no resurrection of the dead. They were very liberal in their understanding of the role of the law in the life of the Jew, and they believed in the free will of man to accept God. The Pharisees, they believed that the coming Messiah would usher in the kingdom of God, and that there was a resurrection of the dead, and that God ordained and controlled all the events that unfolded around them. So when, Mar- or so when Jesus told Martha that her brother would rise, She acknowledged that she was orthodox in her theology. Yep, I believe in the resurrection. She said that she was confident that her brother was a true believer and that he he would rise at the end of the age. But because of her bad theology, her incomplete understanding of who it was that was standing in front of her, she completely missed the meaning and the comfort that Jesus had just told her. And verses 25 and 26 are historic. They're epic, monumental. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Once again, for the sixth time, Jesus makes a clear declaration that he is God by using that divine I am of Exodus. Here, once again, he reveals to a greater degree who this I am God is. He is the resurrection. But not just the resurrection, he's also the life. That resurrection can be understood to happen on that last day. The life, that happens here in the present tense, now. Jesus is speaking that heavenly language once again. The already and the not yet being found bound up together in him. He didn't say that he would usher in the resurrection or that he was Lord over the resurrection. He is both of those things. But he very clearly said That he is the resurrection and the life. This is of supreme importance for us to understand. Because the Jews hoped in the future resurrection, the Christian hopes in the present life. That life that is given them in and through the Son of God, who is the resurrection. We don't hope in the resurrection, the event of the resurrection. We hope in the resurrection, the person of the resurrection. This is that heavenly paradox that is so commonly found in the scriptures. Like in John 5, 25, when Jesus said that an hour comes and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour will come and at the same time is now. Now. The dead will hear, and those who hear will live. That statement, just like the one that we, are concer- that we have concerning him being the resurrection and the life, is a paradoxical intrusion of the heavenly into the historical, without contrast or contradiction. In verse 26, Jesus explains further what being the resurrection means for those who believe in him. In verse 25, he says that people die, but those that die in him will live. And then in verse 26, he contrasts the mortal life that people live, the life that they can and do die in with the real life that is found in him, the life that cannot and will not ever end. Clearly, he's speaking about a life that we don't know. The life that we do know is a life of suffering, pain, and death. Clearly, Jesus is speaking about a different life than this existence that we call life. This is important in understanding the mission of Christ, the mind of Christ, and even the life of Christ. The point is this, is that the Christian life is a life without the constraints of death. We no longer live under the death penalty that plagues every other human. The power of death has lost its sting. This is why Paul could boldly proclaim, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians one twenty one. But the problem lies in the fact that we either don't know this as reality or we don't believe it to be true. We who call ourselves Christian who have made that profession of faith in Christ have the promise and guarantee in writing, in writing from Christ that we will never die. This should make a difference because this does make a difference. Have you ever wondered how some people can do the things that they've done? Take, for instance, Jim Elliot. What caused him to have the ability to forsake normal life and stand empty-handed across from a hostile native with a spear? Or George Mueller, why did he forsake the life of comfort and ease to serve the least of humanity? Or William Tyndale, why would he share the gospel and print the Bible knowing that he would be arrested, hung with a chain, burned alive, and then have have his body blown up with gunpowder? It's because they believed Christ. They knew that men could do nothing to them. That their life was secure in Christ. And that though they would die in the flesh, they had determined to really live in Christ. They knew what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This all ties back into that incorrect belief of Martha. She believed in God, but the God that she believed in was tied into the presence of Christ, where he was, That was the issue. If you would have been here, she believed in God in a generic way, in an impersonal way. She had made Jesus out to be a steward of the power of God instead of God himself. She may have believed in God, but belief in God is not belief in Christ as God. There was a purpose for all of what had happened that illness, that death, the pain. Allowing Lazarus to die was the discipline of the Lord that is spoken of in Hebrews 12. The discipline that is for our good, in order that we can share in his holiness. The discipline that while it is not pleasant, afterward produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. And we, are given the privilege, the privilege of seeing that peaceful fruit of righteousness in the life of Martha shown to us in our text here today. Because if Jesus had healed Lazarus, Martha would never have gone through the emotional and spiritual turmoil that had brought her to the feet of Jesus. She would have never had to deal with the real Jesus versus the one that she had made up in her head. She would have continued believing in a generic God, but never really understanding that Jesus is God. She would have continued having hope in the event of the resurrection, not the person of the resurrection. She would never have been broken to the point of coming to Jesus with her bad theology, and after pouring out her heart to him, have him correct her with truth she would never have been told that he is the I am, that is the resurrection and the life. She would have never had this reality come alive within her to the point that when Jesus asked her if she believes, she is able to say in the most precise and perfectly worded manner the reality of true belief. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But you may be sitting there thinking, that's not a good trade. Having to deal with my brother die, the pain and suffering, that pain and suffering, and then wrestling with the disappointment in God that I'm feeling, to deal with all this gut-wrenching pain and emotion and the spiritual turmoil Just to gain a better and more understanding, or more correct understanding of Jesus, that doesn't seem like a good trade. If you're thinking this, then you now know why your faith is so anemic, why your life in Christ is boring, why, while you profess to believe, deep down you doubt. You have never had the discipline of the Lord produce the fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. You may have suffered in this life, but that suffering, that pain, that loss has not trained you. You have resisted that training. You have kept a firm, stiff upper lip and stoically accepted that discipline, but you have not been trained by it. You have resisted coming to Christ, coming with your heartbreak, your pain, your bad theology, and even your accusations. You don't pray. You simply endure. And because of this, your faith is weak and frail. This is a real problem. Again, listen to our brother Paul how he admonishes us to live. He said, for we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And Galatians two twenty, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The discipline of the Lord does not have to come in the form of physical pain and suffering. All too often, he uses those things for discipline in the the lives of those that are his because those that are his are unwilling to step out in faith and and to learn the lesson of discipline in order that they might be trained by it. Jesus asked Martha if she believed. He asked her if she believed him. He's asking her if she has faith. And she said that she did. So what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance for things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the belief in the unbelievable. It is seeing the unseen. And we're told Further in Hebrews, that without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who approaches Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. It's been said that all men die, but that not all men truly live. This is an accurate assessment of most people, and unfortunately, Too many sons of God fall into this category as well. Dear ones, let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked Martha on that day when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe this to be true? If you do, then act on it. Allow the Lord to strengthen your faith through exercise. Walk by faith. Develop a real intimate relationship with God through prayer. And then through faith, actions of faith trust in the Lord. It will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness within you. Just as this discipline of the Lord has in the life of Martha. And so she walked by faith. Verses 28 through 32. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, went to get her, to bring her to the master, went to fetch her in order that he might comfort her with the same discipline that he had comforted Martha with. And John, in his commentary on these events, is very careful to point out the fact that Jesus never participated in the ceremonial and religious mourning over the death of Lazarus. He remained outside of it all. This isn't to say that he didn't feel that he didn't care, but he would not overemphasize this life, especially over and against the real life that was found in him. And when Mary heard that Jesus was on the scene and had called for her, she seemed to get up at once and head out to meet him. But tragically, the thing that she says to him once that she got there is the same exact Thing that Martha had said to him you should have been here why were you not here this is a reality that we need to think about our understanding of the Lord our faith in the Lord the reality of the Lord in our lives will be affected and influenced by those you hang out with These sisters who were grieving the loss of their brothers, who had been praying that Jesus would come, these sisters had both agreed that if Jesus would have just showed up, their brother would not have died. They both agreed that Jesus failed to live up to their expectations of what they saw as as his obligation to them. Let us be careful about who we hang out with. Who speaks into our life? That person may be fun, may be a blast, may be charming and even charismatic, but are they faithful? Are they filled with faith? Do they challenge you to go deeper in your faith? Do they challenge you with acts of faith? Mary and Martha had been of the same opinion concerning Jesus. He failed them. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. For many, it is the verse where the humanity of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the emotion of Christ is best seen. It is the illumination of verse 14 of chapter 1, which tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the proof text for Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Years ago, I asked a number of pastors the same question. Why did Jesus weep in verse 35? I came away with five different answers from them. The first was that he wept with the mourners, that he saw all the pain and sorrow that was going on around him, and because of this, he was caught up in the emotion and he wept. And this would make sense, since we're told in Romans twelve fifteen that we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But the problem with this thinking is that Jesus has purposefully remained outside of all the ceremonial trappings of mourning. He didn't weep privately with Martha or with Mary. Are we to believe that he was caught up now in the emotional moment? that he lost his composure and his focus, that the intensity of the professional mourners worked and had sucked him in? I don't think so. Another answer that I got was that he wept for the disciples. The reasoning behind that answer was found in Matthew twenty-six thirty-one, when Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it was written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. While he did have concern for the disciples, the thought that it was in the midst of all that was going on at that moment that he, at that moment, began to think about the disciples falling away, and for this reason, he wept? Completely unreasonable. A third reason that I was told that he wept was for those that hated him. We're told in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, that when he drew near the city of Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But once again, this would pull Jesus out of the context of the event that was at hand, the very reason that he had come to Bethany, the very thing that he desired to teach and reveal to all that were there. A fourth reason I was told that that he wept was for the sin of man, particularly Judas. Matthew 26, 24 was the reference verse that we used to back up that thinking, which says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Once again, this would distance Jesus, Jesus from the very reason that he had told the disciples that they needed to go back to Judea. It would have shifted the focus from the events at hand to a very obscure and off-the-wall thinking about a man that Jesus had called the devil in John 6.70. And then the fifth reason that I was told that Jesus wept was for himself. The reasoning behind this thinking was that as Jesus was standing there in front of that tomb, he couldn't help but think about his own journey that would lead to a very similar place. And the verse that this man used to back up this thinking was Mark 14:36, which says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what you, I will, but what you will. While all those possible are possible reasons why Jesus wept, we are given a very compelling truth in verse 33 that led to the emotion of verse 35. There's a verb that's used within verse 33 that was used to describe the emotion that Jesus was feeling. A verb that has been notoriously hard to translate and understand. In the ESV and most modern translations, we have it translated as deeply moved. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. But the issue is that most places, actually all other places in Scripture where that word is used, it means angry or supremely displeased. So why Jesus wept? The answer to that question depends on your point of view. As Jesus stood there surrounded by people who he truly loved and who had been given to him by his Father, who were mourning the loss of a loved one. He was moved to compassion with them, and he wept. This is what all that were standing there on that day, all that were looking on, this was their point of view. This is what they saw. Jesus saw that, and much more than that as well. He saw the sin and disbelief that surrounded him. His disciples that didn't believe him. Mary and Martha that accused him. He saw and knew that these people who did believe in him didn't really believe in him as they should. That they were clinging much too tightly to this life and not striving for the real life that is found in him. He saw that within that crowd, that crowd that could marvel at how much he loved these people, At the same time, there were people in that crowd that would accuse him of apathy and not doing what they desired him to do. He had come to the tomb of Lazarus, to that place of death for those that were mourning. And there he saw the reality of life, that this entire world is a tomb of death in waiting. These people saw the physical death of a single man. Jesus saw the eternal death of all men who were not given him. He saw the eternal never-ending death that is the due penalty and just reward for the sin of people. But there's one more thing that Jesus saw as he stood there on that day. He saw the ramifications of of his healing and bringing Lazarus back to life. He was standing on the outside of a tomb that was more than likely a lot like the tomb that he would be looking at from the inside out in just a few days. Death, his mortal enemy, our mortal enemy, was staring him in the face. Death, the last and ultimate victory of Satan against the children of God, was standing there in, in open contempt, mocking the Son of God. Death would have to die. It would have to die for the rescue mission that he, the Son of Man, who had been sent by his Father to secure the life of those that had been given him, for that mission to be accomplished, death would have to die. And for that to happen, Jesus was going to have to die. But this all ties back in with that bad understanding of Martha concerning the purpose of the Son of God coming into the world. The same bad understanding that far too many evangelicals today hold on to. The thinking that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. That Jesus came to make our life, this physical life, more fulfilling, more happy, More like Disneyland. He didn't. In Luke Luke chapter 12, we are told why he came, what his mission was. He said in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. He came to burn up all the false hope. All the false lies, the false gods of this realm, of this earth. And then in verse 50, he has this to say about the means that would bring about the completion of that mission, of the casting of fire on this earth. Verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do not think for one Single moment that what the Pharisees would do to Jesus scared him. The arrest of him, the mocking of him, the slapping and abuse that they would hurl at him. That's not what caused him distress. And don't think that it was the torture by the Roman soldiers either. Jesus has proven over and again that he's not afraid of danger. He had faced stoning on at least two separate occasions. He'd almost been drowned at sea. He'd almost been torn apart by an angry mob. And none of these things stopped him from preaching the truth of who he was. And then after admitting that the baptism that he had to endure brought great distress to him, he quickly moves away from his own emotion to the effects of that baptism that he would endure, how that would affect those that believe in him. He said, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He wanted to make sure that those that were his were not surprised by what was happening to them within their own families, because of their belief in Jesus. But what was it that Jesus was so distressed about? What was it that caused him in the garden on the night that he was betrayed to pray to his father to remove? What was in that cup? Because he prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The answer to that question is the answer to the meaning of sending Jesus into the world. It's the answer to the mission of Christ. The answer to the why of the ministry of Christ. Was Christ just sent to provide an example of godly living? Was he sent here to make our lives better, more fulfilling? Was he sent to demonstrate the love of God to all of his creation? Whatever it was in that baptism, in that cup, this is what caused Jesus to weep on that day. This is what caused him to be such great, so greatly distressed. And this is what it was the perfect, spotless Son of God, who knew no sin, who had lived for all eternity past in complete relationship with His Father, would become sin. He would soon become the sin of Lazarus, the man that He would soon bring back from the dead. He would become the sin of Martha and Mary, who could stand there on that day and accuse Him of letting them down, of not living up to his obligation to them. He would become your sin and my sin. And he would, for the first time in all time, be separated from the love of his Father because of our sin. And then the wrath. The full, complete unhindered, unrestrained wrath of his loving Father would be hurled against him. The one who had never known sin, but was now completely sin. I would submit to you, this is what caused Jesus to weep on that day. Yes, it was compassion for his children that he wept. They wept out of loss. He wept with them, but for a much greater reason. He wept because he knows the true loss that he would soon face, that would end at a place much like the one that he was now standing at. But there is a correlation between his weeping and the discipline of his saints. Jesus allowed these, his, child, his children, to endure pain, suffering, and loss. He used these things as discipline in the lives of those that he loved in order that they might be trained by this discipline and have the peaceful fruit of righteousness, righteousness produced in their lives. But listen to the author of Hebrews. Hebrews the one that began that exhortation concerning the discipline of the Lord, the one that tells us that we should um, accept that discipline, listen to how he began that thought. He said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God yes your sin was a reason that Jesus suffered and died yes This cup was so horrible that it caused him to sweat drops of blood. Yes, he said that this baptism caused him great distress. And yes, your sin separated him from his father. These were the reasons that God wept. But it was his joy. To purchase you this is why we should endure his discipline with joy in our hearts because he loves us we are that joy that was set before him which caused him to endure the cross despising the shame that are brought to him we are his joy because we are the the love gift from His Father to Him. Here is the final course correction for those that are called according to His purpose. We may be like Martha, like Mary, or even Thomas. We may have bad theology, incomplete and incorrect thinking concerning Jesus and how He should act towards us and for us. But if if we are his, and because we are his, we can know, know that he will carry us home and that he's leading us home because we are his joy. He loves us through tears, through pain, through suffering, and through separation. And because of this, we can know. We can know the love of the Father, the love of the Spirit, and the love of the Son. This is why we can and should embrace the discipline of the God who weeps. Because we are His joy.